for me to be able to introduce Dr. Whitcomb at this time. Thank you very much. I count it a special privilege to be with you this evening, and I hope most of you will be back tomorrow evening for parts three and four of this four-part series on creation and catastrophism. In other words, the Genesis record of the creation of the world and the destruction of the world in the light of scientific concepts of Earth history. Now, if you'll please turn in your little a six or seven page syllabus to the first lecture outline under the general heading of evolution on trial and particularly this first session creation and evolution you'll notice that I have divided each of the three outlined lectures into two parts part a the actual topic and part B the bibliography which contains books for your further consideration that shed light on the things that we are planning to discuss in this session. Under the heading of scientific objections to the neo-Darwinian evolution model. May I explain that title? I want to be very clear tonight as to what we're trying to prove, what we're trying to demonstrate, so that you may jot down questions in the light of this for our question period that will follow the second session tonight. You will notice we have deliberately avoided saying biblical objections. That will be the second session. Very few people in our generation, in our culture and society, even highly educated people, are fully aware of the scientific objections to the currently popular evolution theory of Earth history. We call it the neo-Darwinian evolution model because, of course, Darwin's original explanations, mechanisms, have been drastically changed uh, at least twice through further careful analysis of the way living things function and reproduce. And so we call this the neo or new Darwinian theory that is now currently popular. I have listed in our outline six of the major objections that uh, scientists have raised against this theory, this model. And I would like to explain, first of all tonight, that everyone must have a working model of Earth history in order to think clearly and logically in his world and life view. You cannot really qualify as a scientist unless you have some kind of a tentative model within which to correlate the data that stream in from every direction, if you didn't have some kind of a framework within which to uh, organize the things that you see and experience, the phenomena of life, uh, you would be in a state of total confusion and chaos. Everyone must have a model of Earth history, of natural processes, if he is to qualify as a scientist, or for that matter, as a philosopher, to explain how everything fits together and produces some kind of a coherent, uh, logical system that also can serve as a prediction model for experiments in the present world in which we live. Now, of course, evolutionism 
has totally dominated uh, higher education in the last 100 years in the Western world. And it's entirely possible that uh, many in this room tonight have been exposed only to that single model and have not really arrived at a conviction through comparing that popular model, that generally accepted model, with an alternative system to see really why they hold to the system they do and whether it has strengths or weaknesses, whether it's really worthy or unworthy. And that is really our purpose tonight, to be as objective as possible. And I want to explain that the reason we're negative to, on evolutionism is for that purpose. I assume you have heard positive arguments for evolutionism. Tonight, we're going to give negative ones to set things in proper context and perspective so that we can see some weaknesses as well as the strengths that I'm sure you're well aware of. Let me just list all six points, and then we'll touch on each one very briefly. First, the incredible complexity of the living cell. That is a serious objection to the evolution model of Earth history. Number two, the mathematical impossibility of spontaneous generation, that is of life just starting all by itself by chance, two or three billion years ago in a primeval seed. Thirdly, the strict limits of genetic variation, that is, things just don't change through time as much as the evolution model would demand. This is a serious objection in the opinion of many scientists. Fourth, the irreversible downward drift of quality in closed systems as predicted by the second law. In other words, instead of things everywhere uh, tending to improve in complexity, an upward drift vertically, we really see just the opposite happening. In fact, not only in living systems, but in non-living systems, not only on Earth, but everywhere in the universe. Uh, the second law of thermodynamics, well known and totally experienced by all of us, is really, when fully understood, a serious contradiction to the evolution model. Fifth, the basically negative effect of mutations. Mutations are drastic, inheritable uh, changes in genetic systems. In subsequent generations, are these um, means or building blocks for nature to select for higher forms in subsequent generations? Many, many scientists have serious questions and doubts about that. And finally, the famous missing link problem still haunts evolutionism namely the total absence of entire chains, not just links, but chains of links in the fossil record of living things that, of course, have long since been buried. Now, coming back to number one, the incredible complexity of the living cell. And of course, if the living cell is complex, what can we say about the entire organism, especially man with his incredible brain uh, what do we say about these living systems just coming into existence by chance? This idea was not understood by Darwin a hundred years ago. Some have said that if Darwin knew how complex a living cell really is, 
he would never have ventured to promote his theory, nor would it have been accepted. Today, we are aware of the fact that a living cell, even submicroscopic, an amoeba, protozoan, is one of the most complex things in the universe. With its uh, complex double membrane, it breathes in and out, and its uh, outer part, the cytoplasm, with its fantastic enzymes that trigger amino acids to build them up into complex polypeptides and proteins by the thousands, and the various little submicroscopic factory systems within the cytoplasm, the mitochondria, et cetera, et cetera. And inside of that, the amazing brain of the system, the nucleus, with its incredible DNA molecules, sort of a double spiral staircase of nucleic acid information units that spell out the entire programming, the blueprint, the information for the next generation as amazing RNA messenger molecules take information from that central template and transfer them to the outer part of the cytoplasm to tell the, the uh, enzymes which amino acids to, to correlate in which directions. If you want to see what the inside of that cell looks like, I would recommend a very inexpensive National Geographic magazine, September 76, which shows you an atlas of the cell. It is unbelievable, incredible, mind-bending, fantastic, and of course raises almost insuperable obstacles to the idea that Darwin espoused 100 years ago that given enough time, a thing like this just by chance would float together. Now that, of course, leads us to our second point, the mathematical impossibility of spontaneous generation. Darwin actually believed that given enough time, uh, rotten rags would uh, produce uh, little creatures and uh, stagnant water would just produce little creatures uh, out of itself spontaneously. Uh, we can say that Darwin then lived in the age of uh, low visibility in terms of these profoundly obvious generally agreed on uh, truths of our generation. Uh, who finally destroyed that myth of spontaneous generation of life? Why, a contemporary of Darwin over in Paris, Louis Pasteur. It was my privilege to visit his laboratory near Paris and to see the same test tubes, flasks, that he used 100 years ago to demonstrate that uh, any nutrient that is sealed off from the air will never produce microorganisms, but uh, a similar flask that is open to the air will begin to produce microorganisms. Why? Because the microorganisms float in and reproduce themselves in the nutrient, and nothing is generated spontaneously. In fact, life can only come from life. Now, I personally have never heard of any biochemist in the world today who believes that today uh, life is being spontaneously generated anywhere. It is claimed that the unique conditions for spontaneous generation do not exist anywhere in the planet, but supposedly they did two or three billion years ago on a shallow sea in a reducing atmosphere with methane and ammonia and hydrogen and water vapor, lightning bolts, and other very strange environmental conditions. But we now know that even under ideal conditions, 
A life simply cannot be generated spontaneously. Uh, we have here some very interesting documents to call your attention. They're not on the book table. They're highly technical volumes uh, for some of you who are interested in these kinds of studies. The Wistar Institute in Philadelphia published a symposium by some of the world's leading mathematicians who challenged some of the world's more prominent biologists, all evolutionists, by the way, in a volume entitled Mathematical Challenges to the Neo-Darwinian Interpretation of Evolution. The gist of the volume is that in terms of mathematical probability, it is impossible for life ever to have evolved by chance. No matter how many billions or trillions or quadrillions of years, you cannot solve those problems by saying, well, just give us enough time and anything will happen. Mathematicians are insisting that given enough time, anything will not necessarily happen. And one thing that won't happen is what the neo-Darwinian model wants to happen, namely, lifeless chemicals floating together to form a living cell, a self-reproducing organism. Part of the problem, uh, Dixon and Webb produced a very hefty volume on this subject showing that really you can't have anything evolving unless you have all the equipment already there, including the enzymes, apart from which no living cell could function. Well, where did they come from? You can't just start with uh, viruses. Uh, they can't reproduce apart from a host cell, so you have to start with the whole system for any of it to work. Well, where did the system come from? Where did it come from? Some have explained that, that Stanley Miller and others have succeeded in showing the precise method by which life on this planet actually did evolve. But on closer inspection, uh, it has been shown that really nothing was demonstrated in Miller's experiments. I'd like to quote from uh, Duane Gish, uh, who for many years was um, a biochemist at Upjohn Laboratories, uh, received his PhD in biochemistry from University of California at Berkeley. And uh, Gish has pointed out that Miller's experiments really prove nothing as to how life could have evolved billions of years ago on this planet. He said the significance of Miller's demonstration is not really very great at all. It might even be termed trivial. Having placed a selected number of gases in a closed system and supplied a source of energy, we would rather be surprised had not such a variety of carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen-containing compounds have been formed. And uh, referring to a work by Philip Abelson to the effect that a reducing atmosphere would have been thermodynamically impossible because an analysis of geologic evidence sharply limits the areas of permissible speculation concerning the nature of the primitive atmosphere and oceans. In other words, it's one thing to say that in a special kind of atmosphere, we can produce living things by chance. That is impossible. It's another thing to prove that there was such an atmosphere in the first place, which Abelson and others have shown from the study of the, of the rocks of the Earth's crust was never here on this planet. And therefore, he concludes, it is evident then that the basis for Miller's experiment did not exist. Number one, the Earth never did have that so-called ideal reducing atmosphere for evolution. Secondly, even if it did have, nothing would have evolved anyway. 
so that you end up with zero evidence by experiment and by speculation on that subject. Imagine, if you can, the problem we face with getting life launched on this planet in a primeval sea by chance. What conditions do you have to have? You have to have a canceling of all presently known physical and biochemical processes for that thing even to be imagined to happen. Number one, where did the biochemical ingredients come from? You can't say, well, they were all just sitting in the ocean waiting to float together. That's no explanation. That's not valid. But even if they were all there, how could they have not only floated together, but stayed together until the complexity of the cell was built up step by step? In a laboratory, you can put things together and allow special mechanisms, as in Miller's experiment, traps and so forth, to create the end product you're really working for. But in the primeval ocean, there were no uh, gadgets or mechanisms or test tubes or uh, special conditions. In other words, things floated together and floated apart again. It'd be like trying to build a ladder of seawater from the middle of the ocean to climb to the moon. At first, it would look encouraging because here would come a wave and you would begin to rise on your raft. And you would say to yourself, well, all I need is another wave and I've achieved step two. But before you achieve step two, step one has canceled itself from the first wave, reversed and went back down, and on the average, you will make no progress toward the moon in the middle of the ocean, waiting for an accumulation of sea waves. This is a typical kind of problem. Not only that, but look at the thing that's supposed to float together. How many component parts in a self-reproducing cell uh, how do they fit together? Well, mathematicians have looked at the problem in terms of uh, statistical probability and have come up with illustrations like these to show the infinite impossibility of anything like this ever happening, no matter how ideal the conditions or no matter how many ingredients they're floating. Imagine a monkey poking blindly at the keys of a typewriter at uh, champion speed maybe 20 keys a second, and uh, paper just rolling endlessly off the end of the typewriter as he slashes at the keys tirelessly night and day. Question, how long would it take for the monkey by blind chance to come up with an arrangement of letters on the typewriter page that would spell, for example, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. You say, well, that's not very many words, and there are only 26 letters. Surely, in a few hours, he'll come up with that combination. Well, I think you suspect what's coming. You ask for probability statistics to come to your rescue, and you will be deeply disappointed at the result. It has been estimated that what actually would happen would be something like this. The number of years that that monkey would have to slash at that typewriter cannot even be imagined by the human mind. But maybe an analogy would help. Imagine a rock so big that with the Earth at its center, the outer edge would reach to the nearest star, Alpha Centauri, 
three and a half light years away, 20 trillion miles away. That's the radius of the rock. Once every million years, a bird comes to the rock and removes from it a piece no bigger than a grain of sand. Four rocks at least that big would be worn completely away by this hypothetical bird before the monkey could even spell Genesis 1-1. There is no number big enough to describe this problem. Now, may I remind you that a living cell is not just 26 parts that are all pre-programmed. There are thousands of parts that have to fit together perfectly or the thing won't function. It cannot live. In fact, one of the greatest problems is this. Uh, what is life anyway? Uh, wonder if all the right things did flow together and form enzymes and amino acids and membranes and so forth and finally came together. What would you really have? You would have a dead cell, not a living one. Why? Because you cannot produce a living thing by tacking together all of its appropriate pieces. Anybody can prove this. Take a frog, slice him into 56 pieces. Don't lose a single piece and immediately put them all together exactly the way they were. What do you have? A dead frog. What is the real difference between that frog, all pieces present in proper position, before and after dismemberment? Nobody really knows. Now these problems have to be explained and, and uh, interpreted correctly for the evolution model, which has already denied spontaneous generation in this world as we know it, to have spontaneous generation at the beginning of life history on the planet. This is a serious, totally unsolved problem. Unsolved problem. You say, well, aren't we about to create life in the test tube in laboratories? Many seriously doubt if such a thing can ever happen. That is, a living, self-reproducing organism made from non-living ingredients. But if in some wild, remote possibility that were accomplished, all it would prove is this, that in the primeval ocean, since there was no biochemist with incredibly complex biochemical laboratory equipment, it could never, ever have happened by chance. Notice in the third place the strict limits of genetic variation. That is, what does this DNA code do to evolutionism? Many have hailed this as the key that unlocks the mystery of evolution. On closer inspection, it seems to be the key that unlocks the impossibility of evolution. Why? Because deoxyribonucleic acid is a fantastically complex information system which tells the next generation exactly what it will be with no real flexibility in terms of vertical evolutionism possible. Now, of course, we're aware of the fact that there are dominant and recessive genes. There is the gene pool. There is the uh, recombination 
and we're going to discuss mutations down under point five, but actually the DNA code, which some have estimated in some cases to have more information programmed into it than a thousand volume encyclopedia of a thousand pages each, uh, simply cannot spell anything. You cannot have a single cell protozoan locked in by its DNA programming, ultimately producing elephants, giraffes, giant pandas, mosquitoes, apple trees, and people. In fact, empirically speaking, no one has ever seen evolution happen. And when we say evolution, we're not meaning the small variations we see within living things, different racial features within mankind and different varieties of dogs and cats and different varieties of uh, corn and wheat. We're not talking about these because these are very, very limited changes within each genotype. The races, the varieties, the basic kind of creature that we're talking about here, man, ape, anteater, armadillo, whatever, is very severely locked in to a system of reproduction from which it cannot emerge. How long would it take an ape to become a man? And the answer is, it not only could never happen, but the ape, by virtue of its DNA code and chromosome count, has only two choices in terms of change, according to Mendelian genetics. Number one, it can become, through inherited mutations and gene depletion, through uh, isolation and inbreeding, it be can become a weaker ape, less capable of adjusting to changes of environment. Or it can become an extinct ape. That's all. A weaker and therefore shadowy reflection of its original power or totally extinct. It can never, ever be reprogrammed to read man. No one has ever seen evolution happen. You cannot see fishes developing legs and coming out of the ocean anywhere ever. You cannot see reptiles producing wings and feathers and becoming birds anywhere ever. You cannot see anything really becoming something distinctly different and especially higher in the order of the family tree of life. It is totally unobserved, unempirical, and therefore really unscientific. You say, well, can't you see it in the fossil record? We're going to discuss that in a moment under point six. In anticipation of that, the answer is no. Some have said, for example, well, we, don't we see the evolution of the horse? Don't we see fossils of horses getting bigger and bigger and more complex and uh, reduction of numbers of toes and various other physical features? G.A. Kerkut, in his remarkable volume, Implications of Evolution, has shown that, as a matter of fact, there is no scientific evidence that the present horse has evolved from the small uh, Aohippus because the various skeletons of horse-like creatures have been collected from different parts of the earth and have been artificially arranged in order of supposed increasing complexity but the actual sequence in the fossil record never points to that type of change. So that actually, 
in the same world, just like in dog kind today, you find Great Danes and toy poodles living together in the same world and one did not evolve from the other. You don't look at a Great Dane or a St. Bernard and say, look how this toy poodle evolved. There is no objective evidence that that has really happened. You say, well, don't we see, for instance, the peppered moth? Uh, in England, there was an industrial revolution and uh, these uh, light gray moths uh, found uh, trees that had light gray bark and uh, this camouflaging protected them from certain birds. But when the industrial revolution came along and the trees all got sooty and dark, then the moths, of course, were more conspicuous and were picked off. And all of a sudden, uh, dark colored moths began to appear. And that was considered a final proof of evolution happening. But of course, what was finally discovered about this was that really within that kind of moth there is the uh, dominant and recessive gene for color. In other words, the spectrum of coloration in that kind of moth was already available, latent in that creature. And uh, natural selection in that case uh, brought out the potential for color variation. And when the pressure was off, and the soot disappeared, they all reverted to type, and they're just like they were before, light colored. Now, this, this is, it is not fair to call that evolution. Uh, if that is the best kind of argument we can find for evolution, of course, evolution has no argument. Every single part of the human body, for example, is programmed genetically in incredible complexity. Uh, where did we get our eyes, for example? Uh, Darwin and his followers suggested that millions and millions of years ago, uh, no creatures had eyes at all as they moved in the darkness of the sea, and that really the eye evolved by chance on the head of an unknown sea creature that somehow had highly sensitive skin in the front of its head that reacted more to light than other parts of the skin, and that somehow the retina and the iris and the cornea and the lens and so forth, not just one but two, interestingly, divided for parallax purposes, just evolved by chance, and then if that weren't enough, optic nerves evolved from those strange and useless objects to the brain, and then finally the creature could see. And we, of course, have inherited our eyes from that uh, supposed ancestor. Now, of course, apart from the absurdity of such a thing happening for no reason, with no direction, no purpose, in which the whole fantastically complex organism had to be there functioning all together before any of it would be of any value, uh, we now know that it could never have happened that way. And yet, by definition, neo-Darwinists simply must believe that that is where the human eye came from. The problem, of course, is that we didn't get our eyes from fishes because on closer inspection they have very different kinds of eyes than we do. But there is a sea creature that has eyes much more like ours, and it's the octopus. You say, well, okay, fine. We got our eyes from the octopus. I wonder if you detect a little problem here. 
The octopus is an invertebrate with no skeleton at all. How could we get our eye from an octopus and our skeleton from a fish? This has proven to be a shattering blow to neo-Darwinian evolutionism, especially when we look in the ocean and find all kinds of creatures with totally different kinds of eyes. The lobster, and of course the insects, totally different design, perfectly functional, in thousands of different kinds of eyes in different parts of the animal kingdom, all of which supposedly evolved by chance. The superstructure of evolutionary interpretation collapses under its own weight. Here's what Darwin said concerning the eye. In a letter to Asa Gray in 1860, he said, I re well remember the time when the thought of the eye made me cold all over. But I have got over this stage of the complaint, and now small trifling particulars of structure often make me very uncomfortable. The sight of a feather in a peacock's tail, whenever I gaze at it, makes me sick. Why? Because with an evolution model, you must explain every beautiful, apparently non-essential uh, part of a body in terms of evolutionary pressure for survival, in terms of a pure chance mechanism. Well, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of beautiful plants and animals that have structures and features interdependent in symbiosis relationships that can never be explained this way. The theory, the hypothesis, the model simply cannot bear up under those pressures. If any of you are interested just in seeing a layman's uh, version of the impossibility of the evolution of birds, look in the current issue of Reader's Digest. The incredible flying machine, the muscular system, the instinct pattern, the, the feather structure uh, of a bird. It all had to function together or none of it would have been any value and you cannot have the gradual evolution of wings. We'll discuss a supposed exception to that a little later. What do we do about the human brain, which is a thousand times greater in its potential for use than it's ever used? How could we get a brain that gigantic, that complex, by the pressure of necessity through evolution? There's an infinite chasm between the animal and man in this and in other areas as well. Point four, the irreversible downward drift of quality in closed systems as predicted by the second law. What is the second law? Well, every housewife knows what the second law is. Uh, if you left your home untouched for a year, how much cleaner and neater would it be than it was before? If you did not do anything to take care of your car, how, would, how much improvement would it experience all by itself? That's how the law uh, works in every system, not only non-living, but living systems. That is, in a closed universe, and of course evolutionism has a closed universe, with no outside intelligent intervention, helping things along or repairing things or creating things. In a closed system, of course even the sun is part of the closed system, because the sun has been shining on this earth for thousands in thousands of years, and the second law still works here. So the sun doesn't solve things. You have to have, in addition to an energy source, you have to have 
a blueprint and you have to have an organizing principle in order for things to become improved. The sun can't do it. It's like laying bricks out on the road and saying, well, since the sun is shining on them, we'll soon have a cathedral here. No, you have to have not only an energy source, but you have to have a blueprint and you have to have a, an ordering system, people following the blueprint, organizing the materials and building the end product. And the second law, therefore, turns out to be a very, very serious problem for evolutionism. Uh, some have said, well, if you just give things more time, they will improve. Perhaps this illustration would help. Wonder if you were flying over uh, West Lafayette, Indiana in a small plane and had uh, a row of three by five cards, each of which had one letter on it that spelled out your entire name, W-H-I-T-C-O-M-B, Whitcomb. And you're gonna drop these cards out of the plane and hope that they will land on the campus in the same order in which they were dropped. You say, well, they'll never make it. They'll flip over. The vicissitudes of the uh, environment of the air will disturb the pattern, and by the time they hit the ground, they'll be hundreds of yards apart, sitting on top of a roof over here and under a car there. You're right. You have lost the order. Now, you say, well, we need more time. Give it time, and it'll overcome that difficulty. So let's imagine putting tiny, fragile, gossamer-thin parachutes on each 3x5 card so they'll float to the ground slower. What will happen? Instead of having even a maintenance of the order you start with, you will have a worse result than you had before because time, coupled with the negative environmental factors, will produce total chaos. One card will float to Indianapolis and another to Warsaw and and you'll have them all over the northern part of the state of Indiana instead of just over the campus. There is no experimental evidence that the second law can be explained away as far as through pure chance bringing higher and higher order in this world. I have a number of articles uh, in our new book on the moon, its creation, form, and significance listed for you in terms of the devastating effect of the second law properly understood on the neo-Darwinian model. And I also would like to recommend at this point a couple of other books. Henry Morris, Scientific Creationism, has a series of chapters that he has edited, including one that deals specifically with the second law. It's called Uphill or Downhill, Chapter 3. How does the law really work in terms of prediction of less and less quality, in other words, you, complex systems through time reduce in quality for useful work, become less and less available for useful work, until finally the energy systems are reduced to the low level of heat energy and total heat death. What does that mean for evolution? Also two excellent volumes by A.E. Wilder Smith, who earned three doctorates in medicine and science in Europe, in England, and in Switzerland, who, in my opinion, is one of the leading minds in Europe today on these issues of the evolution-creation model controversy. Here's his volume, The Creation of Life, A Cybernetic Approach to Evolution and Man's Origin, Man's Destiny. 
And in these volumes, I have found some of the most beautiful illustrations of how these problems can be clearly understood by the layman. And this is the book that I received the uh, illustration on the three by five cards floating down. This is typical of Wilder Smith's way of clarifying the problem. So we're not just sunk under terminology and semantics. Point five, the basically negative effect of mutations. Mutations presumably are caused mostly by cosmic radiation bombarding the delicate DNA code information system in living things, plants, and animals. And these drastic changes are inherited into the next generation. Now, the question is, here's neo-Darwinism. Uh, can these drastic inheritable changes perhaps be, as uh, one man put it, hopeful monsters in the evolution ladder? Totally arbitrary, totally random, weird things hatching out of eggs or and being born, monstrosities, as it were, which nevertheless prove to be the stepping stones of evolution to higher and higher forms of life. That has been very carefully analyzed by many, many specialists. And the general consensus is that at least 99% of all mutations are harmful, if not deadly. And even the 1%, or less than 1% that is debatable, turns out at best to be harmless and certainly not a basic structural functional improvement in the mechanism. In other words, there are no hopeful monsters. Monsters get selected by nature out and designed for extinction, not as stepping stones to higher forms of life. That is one of the beautiful things about natural selection. Nature, as it were, serves as a cleansing agent to remove those damaged and monstrous things that uh, appear from time to time because of mutations. Someone says, yes, but I thought we have the survival of the fittest. Well, wh what is the fittest? This surely is a redundancy because it turns out that neo-Darwinism explains the fittest means the things that survive. Well, this is no objective definition. Obviously, everything that survives will be the fittest if the fit fittest survive. What does it prove? Nothing. Through mutation effects, electrical mutations. Would the message improve? It can be shown mathematically, statistically, that no message ever delivered in the world would be improved in quality by an arbitrary, random, garbling interference. Never. And yet we're asked in the name of science to believe that a random, garbling, confusing intrusion into the incredible DNA message program brings an improvement of living things. All we're asking for is some evidence of this anywhere in the universe. There is none. I have an interesting quote by George Gaylord Simpson to that effect that uh, really mutations uh, Frankly, and of course Simpson is one of the main proponents of evolutionism in the world today, and uh, interesting indeed are to hear, are, is to uh, listen to quotes from men like this. He has calculated that if the mutation rate were one in 100,000, that's the average mutation rate in living things, and if the occurrence of each mutation doubled the chance of another mutation occurring in the same cell, 
which it doesn't, the probability that five simultaneous mutations would occur in any one individual would be one times 10 to the 22nd. This means that if the population averaged 100 million individuals, and if the average generation lasted only one day, such an event as the appearance of five simultaneous mutations in one individual would be expected once in every 274 billion years. In other words, you cannot have elephants and giraffes appearing by inherited mutations from a protozoan two billion years ago. Impossible. You say, well, what about blind cavefish? All right, that's a mutation, which produces not an improvement, but something in that rare, dark environmental situation, a non-disaster. After all, in a totally dark cave lake, blindness is no disadvantage over sight. But who's going to say that blindness is an improvement in fish? Uh, what about Drosophila fruit flies? So haven't we bombarded them with x-rays in order to induce mutations and to see how greatly they have improved through time? Millions of Drosophila fruit flies have thus been treated or mistreated with very dismal results. The fantastic variety of weaker, more crippled insects than ever before. Actually, it'd be like standing 10 feet from a beautiful electric typewriter and throwing rocks at it with the hope that one of these intrusions, drastic, random, would improve the whole design of the machine and produce a calculator. How many rocks would you have to throw at a typewriter to basically improve its design? The answer, an infinite number would accomplish nothing. Things just don't happen that way in this universe. And finally, the missing link. Where are they? You know what Darwin said 100 years ago? He said, someday we'll find them. He was aware of the very great embarrassment because you'd expect that if everything gradually changed from ancestors through various gradations, that you'd expect to find in the fossil record a complete spectrum of these intermediate forms. If birds, full-feathered, winged birds, evolved from featherless, wingless reptiles, through millions of years of gradual inherited mutations, micromutations. You'd expect to find in the fossil somewhere a creature with a half-size wing, a quarter-size wing, an eight-size wing, or, and then hopefully in the proper order. Not only do you not find anything in that order, you don't find any intermediate form. You say, well, what about Archaeopteryx? Well, Archaeopteryx is no longer a candidate for evolutionism because, of course, on closer inspection, it is a full-winged, full-feathered, flying creature. And just because it has teeth and claws at the end of its wings does not provide for it the qualification of being a missing link because it is not a half-winged, half-feathered creature. It's like the duck-billed platypus of Australia, which has features of a bird, lays eggs, and features of a mammal. It has fur and suckles its uh, hatched platypi on milk. <laughs> What is this thing? It is not a missing link between bird and mammal. It has too many strange combinations in it that make it a unique creature in the living world. And so is the Archaeopteryx. I would recommend very highly 
Dr. Dwayne Gish's book, Evolution, The Fossils Say No, in which he points out there are no missing links between invertebrates and vertebrates, between vertebrates, fishes, and amphibians, and between amphibians and reptiles, and between reptiles and mammals, or birds, or between apes and men. We have a perfect right to demand evidence in the fossil record. And the fossil record, as leading paleontologists the world over admit, such as Goldschmidt and Schindewolf, Herbert Nielsen, the paleobotanist of Sweden, and many others who've studied the coal seams and so forth in our Earth's crust have concluded. There are no missing links. Why? Well, some say, well, they were all destroyed by local catastrophe. That's no explanation. Or they just sort of vanished. Well, why so systematically? That's no explanation. There is a better explanation, which will be the topic of our next session, namely, you don't find missing links anywhere in the fossil record because there never were any. The basic kinds of living things in our world were created by God. Thank you very much. Five-minute break.